This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hi, I'm Hanif Baharuddin and you're listening to Night School, the show that explores ideas and themes in the social sciences and the humanities. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest today, Nadine Faisal, a history graduate. Welcome to the show. Hi. Welcome. Hi. Welcome, Nadine. Thank you so much. Okay. Uh, maybe you want to tell us a bit about yourself, Nadine. Okay. Just to share with us like um, what you do and what you've sort of learned. Definitely. Uh, so my name is Nadine Faisal. I'm a recent graduate from the University of Chicago, literally just left undergrad. I came back to Malaysia from the U.S. in July. Okay, welcome so, back. Thank you so much. <laughs> so I've been here about, what, now it's October. So it's been like, what, three mm. months so far. Yes, I have uh, recently come back, and when I came back, I started interning at the Naganita, a non-government organization that seeks to promote and protect rights of uh, marginalized communities such as migrant workers, refugees, trafficked individuals, etc. But I have also stayed plugged into like the humanities community, courtesy of Simon Soon, <laughs> one of our hosts, who became friends with me on Instagram, yeah. and then the moment I came back, introduced me to people in this history community which I have been very appreciative of and it's allowed me to kind of learn about the scene here mm, for history. Great, great. Yeah. I mean I'm sure you have a lot to share with us here in Malaysia as well uh, coming from Chicago which apparently has a very interesting program mm. that is very perhaps also very different from how we teach history mm. or what we teach or what are the things that we sort of talk about in history over here, right? Oh, uh, so maybe you can sort of like give us a sense of why Why did you even sort of like take up history and why did you pick Chicago? Okay, yeah. Why did I pick Chicago? So initially, I was actually double majoring in economics okay. and history. In fact, my primary major was economics. Uh, and the University of Chicago is known to be like the place to be if you want to be studying economics. Right. But they're also very strong in history. Ah. And because I was studying in the U.S., I had the privilege of being able to defer declaring my major until the end of the second year, actually. Mm. In Malaysia, you have to know what you want to major in before you start at university. In the U.S., you don't have to. You can be undeclared mm. for the whole first year, really. But you should have an idea. Lah. Okay. Um, so, but I understand correctly mm. that Chicago's economics program at least has a long history that, or a history that connects back to Milton Friedman, right? Yes. And then that's a very sort of like neoliberal yeah. way of thinking about economics. How did you sort of like decide to choose to, you know, go into that program rather than explore different kinds of like economic, different ways of sort of like doing economics? Uh, uh, was, say... was it a specific or strategic sort of like choice or... I wouldn't say there was that much strategy going into the choice. It was more like, okay, I know that this is a good a school, for, a good school right. for economics. I mean, even with history, I didn't know much about the field going in, and my choices for my major were driven largely by curiosity. Mm. So when I was taking history courses, it was driven by curiosity. And eventually, I realized that I was enjoying my history classes far more than I was enjoying my economics classes. And I also realized that my economic courses was leading me to, you can either go into it academically, which is very math-heavy at mm -hmm, Chicago, yeah. or you could go like into consulting or investment right. banking. That was th Neither of those were something that I was interested in. And instead, I was 
particularly interested in the classes I was taking in the humanities. So that's how I ended up dropping mm. economics as a major because the opportunity cost was just too high for me to continue that because <laughs> it would mean taking less history courses. Uh, yeah. Did your initial interest in economics as well as the sort of math-heavy way in which you learn economics at Chicago Mm-mm. ever shape or inform the way you approach history? The math approach and history. Uh, or maybe the quantitative sort of approach. Uh, I would say not yet so far, although that's interesting. Because yeah. I, I imagine there would be very, two very different models, right? or two very different modes of inquiry. Yeah, 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 definitely. But I would say that my motivations for taking economics and taking history stem from the same thing. I'm a JPA scholar, mm-hmm. and we have an obligation to serve the public after we end our education. And my father was also a beneficiary of this scholarship, and he kind of like inculcated some kind of passion for public service in me. Mm-hmm. So both history and economics stemmed from a desire to find out what's most impactful for society and mm-hmm. how I can be of most use for society, given the fact that I would have to give back to the Rakyat. Mm-hmm. Um, and how's so, that coming along? How's uh, that coming along? So uh, me staying in history with like a lukewarm interest and also lukewarm aptitude, I would say, uh-huh. would not probably be not uh, be the best for the Malaysian people in regards to me. But um, uh-huh. but under the JPA scheme, mm-hmm. are you then obligated to you know enter civil service on and on some level you know contribute back through that particular career trajectory? Yeah. You have to apply to enter the civil service, but as we all know, the civil service is bloated and also nobody in the civil service quits. So there aren't actually many positions that are open to uh, JPA scholars, even though it's a requirement to apply. Mm -hmm. Uh, Instead, it's actually really free and flexible. The requirement is basically just that you apply to jobs in Malaysia Mm -hmm. and you can apply in the public sector as private sector as well. Sorry. You can apply in the private sector as well. If you get a position, you just have to get it approved by JPA. But even then, you don't have to apply to Malaysian companies only. You can apply to multinational companies. Okay. As long as you stay put here. No, if that company then sends you abroad, then you can go abroad. Ah. The idea is the bond to the government transfers over to the company that I you see. work for. Oh, wow. That's the theory of it, but the practice might might be a bit different. Okay, yeah. interesting. Okay, let's <laughs> let's then let's talk about a bit about what you have actually learned there, right? Yeah, sure. And you you what's interesting is that you you not only sort of like read history but you also write history in relation to South Asian languages mm-hmm. and civilizations. Mm-hmm. And this would sort of like be broadly framed under what is called like Indian Ocean history on some mm-hmm. level. Yeah. Uh, can you sort of like tell us more about this way of, or what is sort of like being studied in Indian Ocean history? Because yeah. uh, I don't think our listeners are, not all of our listeners would be familiar with this field. Yeah. So first of all, where is the Indian Ocean? Uh, The Indian Ocean would be defined as the space that uh, you can imagine it as an equilateral triangle between Southeast Asia and East Africa. So you have on the east, Southeast Asia forming one side of the triangle, and at the very top you have India. Mm -hmm. And then India is kind of like a fulcrum at the top. You have the Coromandel Coast Mm -hmm. on the east, and you have the Malabar Coast on the west. And then on the western side of that triangle, you have the 
Arab Peninsula, mm-hmm. and you also have Tanzania, Somalia, etc. Mm-hmm. And historically, there has always been movement in this area of the world between the coasts mm. uh, that border the Indian Ocean. So Indian Ocean history brings the focus onto that as opposed to landlocked right. defined areas because areas that we would be familiar with would be Southeast Asia, South Asia, Europe, mm. North America, and those are all defined by land masses. Mm. But Indian Ocean history the geographical area that it focuses on is defined by the body. Bodies of water. Exactly, right. exactly. Oh, cool. And that allows you opportunities to, it kind of like lights up a whole different network of connections. Mm. Um, and what, what were these connections driven by? Uh, trade, uh, there was a lot of travel across the ocean for trade. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that would probably be the main push factor and pull factor for people traveling across the Indian Ocean. Mm -hmm. But you can see that alongside that, a lot of other impacts were made in the field of culture and religion, etc. So you can see that I don't know how much this has to do with the Indian Ocean necessarily, but naming practices. You know how in Malaysia, so my full name would be Nadine Azalia Binti Muhammad Faisal, and Mm -hmm. Malays here we use Binti and Bin. But in in the Arab world, you don't say Binti, you don't say Bin, you say Ibn, you say Bint. But in Tanzania on the west coast of Africa, they use bin and binti. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so what kind of, so what connection is there mm. between that? And does it have to do with, does it have to do with movement across the Indian Ocean? And right. you would also notice another example that in terms of mazhabs, mm-hmm. so uh, for listeners, mazhabs means legal school of thought right. within uh, Islamic fiqh or Islamic law. And there are four major madhabs, uh, Hanbali, Hanafi, Shafi'i, and Maliki. Mm-hmm. Uh, and different regions of the world follow different madhabs. Now, these are all the same same creed-wise. Mm-hmm. There's no variation in the theology. Mm-hmm. So it's not like Sunni-Shia divide. Right. Rather, it's purely legal interpretation. So how jurisprudence. You, exactly, right? how you okay. practice the faith rather right. than what you believe. Uh, so Malaysia is Shafi'i. Mm-hmm. Egypt is also Shafi'i. Uh, Turkey is Hanafi. South Asia is largely Hanafi. But if you look at the coasts of the Indian Ocean, you can see that the Muslims on the coast are Shafi'i. So that gives you an idea that there was circulation of Shafi'i legal thought across the Indian Ocean coasts. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, speaking about naming practices then, uh, so much of our naming practices tends to be confined within a smaller geographic region, right? Mm. Whether we think of ASEAN or whether we use the word uh, Dunia Melayu Mm. or maybe not so much Dunia Melayu. Dunia Melayu tends to have a much more expansive connotation, but uh, the Malay archipelago, for example, or even before that, uh, this area would be called the Indian archipelago. Mm-hmm. What do you think is the benefit of actually sort of like expanding the parameter of this sense of the region into, you know, a larger body of water as compared to only focusing on, say, the island part of, say, Southeast Asia? I think that you gain a bigger appreciation for the origins. You gain a bigger appreciation for the origins of... Uh, I guess, realities, lived realities in the present. Mm -hmm. For example, you would have to work within the realm of Indian Ocean history just for 
to stay within the question of naming practices, mm -hmm. to understand the Sayyids and Sharifas, which stem from uh, Hadrami mm -hmm. uh, origin in Yemen, and that's on like the western side of the Indian Ocean. So we can see that a lot of things that uh, we live by today, they have origins in regions outside of the Indian archipelago or the Malay archipelago. So mm -hmm. that's why it's important to analyze the Indian Ocean mm -hmm. as a geographical region as well. Mm. And you have a specific project that you're still working yeah. on and, and it's an ongoing sort of like project of yours and it's uh, principally uh, transcribing a Jawi manuscript mm -hmm. that you have discovered that has not been transcribed or transliterated yeah. to this day, right? Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Definitely. So the project I'm working on is transliterating this Malay manuscript of Hikayat Saiful Muluk. As far as I know, it has not been transliterated. There is a transliterated version, but in Acehnese, mm -hmm. not in Malay. And this mm -hmm. is also the only manuscript known in the Malay language. It's in Jawi, unstandardized Jawi. Mm -hmm. The manuscript itself is undated. We're not really sure when it's from, but we think... When I say we, I mean scholarship at large. Right. We think that it comes from the 19th century. It's also, uh, we don't know who the author is either. Where is this located? Uh, the manuscript is in Berlin, and I'm transliterating it off a digital copy made available online. Mm. Yeah, I'm transliterating it and translating it oh, from wow. Malay to English. But honestly, transliterating alone is a challenge in and of itself because it's unstandardized Jawi. Jawi spelling was only standardized relatively recently. Right. But in this unstandardized Jawi, you have inconsistent spellings. In terms of the story itself, Hikayat Saiful Muluk, uh, Saiful Muluk is a character actually in the 1001 Nights in the Arabian Nights. Ah, okay. But the, the story, uh, it starts with an Egyptian king who doesn't have a child and he wants to have a child. So he is asked to uh, make the a princess from Yemen his wife, and then he and then he has a child, and that child is Saiful Muluk, and the Ahli Nujum or the uh, what would you call Ahli Nujum? The or? fortune teller, I suppose right. you could call them. Uh -huh. They foresee that this prince will be like a he will have power over so many lands, and he will become a famous ruler, etc. And this prince grows up to lay his eyes on a piece of cloth which has the likeness of someone named Badi Uljama. Mm -hmm. And this actually has precedent in a lot of South Asian literature. You don't have to see the beloved in real life. Right. You can even just hear a description of the beloved right. and then you fall into like irrevocable love with right, that right. beloved. So that has a huge precedent in South Asian literature and it's the same in this hikayat. So he falls in love with this woman named Badi Jamal, but nobody knows where she is. And so he sets off on this adventure to find her. Oh, wow. Yeah, I can't really tell you the resolution of the story because I'm still working through it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, cool. <laughs> but, but you can see that... Um, it spans uh, multiple regions in the Islamic world. Right. It refers to the Red Sea in a different name. I can't recall at the moment, mm -hmm. but it doesn't refer to the Red Sea in the way it's known like right now. Right. Uh, they have a specific name for it. But if you put it into like old dictionaries, you can find, oh, that refers to the Red Sea. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, it refers to Egypt, Yemen. So there was this consciousness in the at least that Malay whoever wrote that in right. Malay of like a larger Islamic world right. and yeah. you have a hunch that this was actually at one point quite a popular 
story. Yeah, right. actually not a hunch. Like, right. you so I would, yeah, can confirm. All right, okay. Definitely. Uh, so how did you come story, to that conclusion? Uh, uh, well, first of all, the project was given to, well, not necessarily given to me, but I, the way I found out about Hikayat Saiful Muluk is from a friend of mine at U Chicago, mm-hmm. who is also working on the same story, but in a different language. Okay. Uh, I believe maybe he's working on the Persian. Okay. Um, so this story has circulated uh, the Islamicate world. What I mean when I say Islamicate is mm-hmm. basically you can say the Muslim world, mm-hmm. but Islamicate is a way to kind of like talk about it as a cultural region, I suppose you could say, mm. Perzo, Persio-Arabic mm-hmm. uh, world. So we have versions of the story in Bengali. Mm. Actually, my professor, while I was transliterating the Malay version, he had just finished transliterating the version written in Bengali okay. by a 17th century poet named Alawal. Okay. Yeah, there are also versions in Persian, etc., mm-hmm. uh, Urdu. Okay. And there's a lake in... Pakistan that's mm. named after this character Saiful Muluk. Right. So there was definitely great circulation of this story mm. across the Indo-Islamic Southeast Asian world. Right. Mm. Okay. And how does this story sort of then function, right? I mean, once it sort of like enters a language, mm. does it then adapt itself to a particular local context? Does it interact with local elements and and then something unique and distinct about the story will then emerge out of this interaction. I uh, think uh, for the large part, it stayed... I don't know was what... Was it faithful to, say, the Farsi? I uh, wouldn't be able to say how faithful it is to the Farsi version. Okay. But in terms of Malay or like Southeast Asian particularities, mm-hmm. there are some, I believe, um, definitely the vocabulary. I mean, it's in Malay. But yeah, kandang and maybe the animals also, the realia basically, okay. uh, the uh, environment of the story might take from uh, Southeast Asia, but I haven't done actually a comparative analysis okay. of of the Malay version and also, but it would be interesting to compare the Malay version and the Achehnese version. Mm. Yeah, once mm-hmm. I've picked up Achehnese, of okay. course. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay, so uh, I think we have to stop right here for a bit uh, and make way for the ads. Uh, stay tuned, you're listening to Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin and Simon Soon and this week we're joined by Natin Faisal, BFM 89.9. BFM 89.9, you're tuned into Night School with me, Hanif Baharudin. I'm joined by Simon Soon and our guest for the week, Nadine Faisal. Uh, she's a history graduate from University of Chicago. And I think in the first part, she has sort of like kindly uh, shared with us her background. And I think in the second part, we're going to delve deeper into a theory called historical thinking, right? Right. So we got a sense of how history can enrich sort of like other fields of study. Yeah. You know, there's an afterlife to your historical study, right? Uh, your undergraduate study. You continue to sort of like take interest in history and now you're still working on a project, mm-hmm. on a transliteration project. Mm-hmm. Um, but how else is history relevant to what you're doing today? I like the word that you use just now, enriching. Yeah. I think that it allows you to appreciate reality on just a deeper level mm-hmm. and historical consciousness, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, the term, it helps with that. So mm. I remember when I was an undergraduate and mm. this kind of, I was having this epiphany. So I studied in Intec before I went to uh, University of Chicago. Intec is a pre-preparatory uh, institution where people do A levels, okay. uh, ADP, etc. And it's in Shah Alam. Okay. So while I was learning about South Asian civilizations, about 
the Persian influence across uh, the world. Then I began to wonder why is there a place in Malaysia called Shah Alam? Mm. Shah Alam isn't an Arabic word. Right, right. Like why why is there a word? Why 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 is Shah Alam called Shah Alam? And what yeah. does that mean? Mm. So then I googled it, and Shah Alam is like from a Persian is from a Persian right. uh, lexicon, right? So how did that get here? <laughs> and then you so you begin to notice these things, right. you know? Why do we dress the way we dress, etc.? And you also notice the For me, a big thing for me was realizing the particularity of all of our circumstances and realities. They're all contingent. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. by contingent, I mean they were dependent on things that happened before. Mm. And the outcome is the way we live today, I suppose. But that doesn't necessarily have to... Nothing. Basically, it's not inherent. It's not necessary that we live this way or we do things in any particular way. It Mm -hmm. just has turned out historically that we've ended up in this way of living, etc. Right. And in your opinion, do you think the teaching of history in Malaysia actually provides us with that kind of thinking skill in order for us to analyze what are some of the causes and consequences, the continuities and changes that shapes this exciting sort of like moments of sort of like transitions, right, that we today call history. Do you think that, you know, students are sort of like given this opportunity to engage with the past in such an exciting manner? I think I see the attempt of that in the history syllabus, Mm -hmm. but as someone who has only recently gone through uh, SPM and all, Mm. I would and all. I would say, frankly, no. Okay. Did you um, did you remember? Did you do history and SPM? I did. did I did okay. do sejarah. I did do history right. for SPM. You have to take it right. if you're okay. doing SPM. Okay. It's okay. not an option. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, okay. you don't. Yeah. You don't I, pass. I remember. <laughs> I guess I remember doing history. Okay. <laughs> Too long ago. Huh? Uh, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, I mean, what we are taught history is basically mm. a narrative, and we are taught. This is the way it was in the past. Mm -hmm, And of course, any version of history is going to be a narrative. But I think as we talked previously, the bigger point is that you are able to kind of, you are able to see the contingency of that uh, in the present. Mm -hmm. By that, I mean, you're able to question why do we do things the way we do etc whereas in school you're just taught these are the facts and this is what happened and although there I think there is an attempt I don't think from my own experience and also from the attitudes of my peers and Mm -hmm. also just people in general when I say oh I'm studying history etc or their their engagement with history I don't think that there is they successfully bring about like a historical consciousness right. uh, throughout through the syllabus. Right, yeah. right, right, right. I mean, I I don't know if it's uh, we're we're sort of like talking about the same context, but mm. when I was doing history many many years ago, yeah. it it wasn't so much a lesson in how we can question what we know about the past. Yeah, uh, what was fed to us were pretty much, I think. There were sort of like questioning happening. Mm. It was a way to, to teach us how to question certain things about the past. Nevertheless, because of the way you're supposed to answer yeah. those questions, yeah. it's always very structured and yeah. there is a model answer. Yes. And that also means that if you ever deviate from the model answer or the, the prescribed answers yeah. uh, that's supplied by, I don't know, the education, or ministry, uh, the education ministry, mm-hmm. that would mean that you have not successfully answered those questions yeah. in a correct manner. Yeah. Uh, whereas, I, I wonder in your experience, 
doing history, has that sort of changed? Or are you also sort of like given extra class so that, uh, are you given sort of like, uh, is it being taught in the way that, you know, you have to answer these questions in a certain way in order to score certain points? Yeah. Uh, no. No, okay, no, so things definitely. have sort of like... Oh, you mean when I was in school? When you were in school. Oh, definitely. When I was in school, okay. you have to follow the marking scheme, actually. Okay, right, yeah. right, right. So yeah. it's still the same, lah. Yeah, know. definitely. Is that, is that still the same. your experience? That's how it was like for okay. me as well. Okay. Yeah. Right. And you were taught differently then in Chicago? Yeah, in okay. Chicago, it's different. I mean, the way we study history, it's a lot like reading group, lah. Okay. Book club. Uh, you come to class, or every class, there's a prescribed set of readings mm. uh, that might be primary sources as well as secondary sources and mm-hmm. you read them so it's very reading heavy okay. and then you come to class and you have to discuss it right. there is a lecture component I suppose you could say but it's also very discussion heavy and we come to conclusions I suppose as a class mm-hmm. or we the specific topics that we delve into within a certain class depends on the interests of the classroom okay. whereas that isn't the case at all for Skola Menunga for high school right yeah. right. so what's the incentive for people to want to read all those heavy dense texts at a university level when it's already so hard to get people to memorize the skeletal facts and information that you find in your secondary history textbook well at the university how is it being level? thought that would yeah how is it being thought or how's the program being structured that would encourage people to be curious yeah well at the university level it's already a self-selecting group i would say okay. the people who are taking history classes are people who are genuinely interested in learning the subject material mm-hmm. of course there are some that you have to do because it's part of the requirements in U Chicago there's a core curriculum and civilizational studies is part of that so every single student has to enroll in in one civilizational course. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did three. Okay. <laughs> but, um, uh, but even then, this flexibility, um, you can choose what civilizational course to take based on your interests. Right. So that element of choice, mm-hmm. I suppose, already predisposes you to be interested in right. the material there. Right, right, yeah. right. I don't know if that's the same for local universities. or. Um, I, I suppose so. I mean, I don't teach in a history department, yeah. but in, in certainly in art history, that's pretty much the model though, mm. I guess. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's pretty similar okay. in, in many aspects. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I'm very invested these days on how you're able to teach those kinds of skills, uh, not just within a university environment, mm. but uh, more broadly, yeah. starting from even primary school, right? Yeah. And I've been exploring this thing called historical thinking. I think the word, uh, the phrase came from a Canadian initiative, mm. uh, teacher's initiative, to really... I guess, restructure how or rethink the purpose of us studying history in the first place, right? And what they've developed is basically a series of six principles that would sort of define how someone can actually engage with history. Uh, So rather than think of history as a series of facts that then you have to memorize, that then confirms or legitimizes, uh, I guess, your sense of identity in the present day, uh, it's really teaching you certain sort of like thinking skills Mm. by allowing you to go through these six steps or allowing you to go through these six principles to arrive at your own sort of conclusion about how you want to make sense of the past. Mm. I wonder if you have any thoughts about this. Yeah, I think I'm really interested in public history, like bringing history to the public and, Mm -hmm. you know, making the public more engaged with historical thinking. And definitely that six-step program sounds like a great idea to implement in schools. Right. Uh, Outside of that, though, I think, so the reason why I brought up the public service element in the beginning before Mm -hmm. the break was the fact that I think 
in studying history, there's also a public service element. Right. Like somebody who has had the privilege to be exposed to all of this historical knowledge and also this way of thinking uh, should, like we need to try to disseminate this historical consciousness and these skills. So public history is a big, important thing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and that would include like uh, education in formal school, but also I think programs like this, which is great, right. and also other things. But I also believe that there's only so much we can do from the outside. Uh, uh, and perhaps not enough of us are actually <laughs> sort of going into the system, right? Whether yeah. it's a school system or or in the civil service to affect the kind of like change. Mm. And, and therefore you tend to sort of like see this divide. I mean, I come across quite a number of people who have graduated uh, with a history degree, like yourself. Yeah. Uh, and most of them are JPA scholars. And the mm. funny thing is, you would imagine that the government would find a way to absorb them into the system yeah. so that they're able to contribute to the country. Mm. Uh, or I imagine that's the best course of action. Yeah. But uh, it seems like there's another design in place. And uh, of course, a lot of history students would then go on to do different things outside of the government. And therefore, the change that... Uh, it gets uh, lost. Yeah, it gets lost. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I don't know. It feels <laughs> like there's a lot of missed opportunity there. Maybe what needs to happen is like a history steering group okay. under the Ministry of Education or something with like history graduates or history professionals such as yourself right, to I don't talk know. about like how historical education in schools could be better. I don't, I don't know if that exists. Mm, yeah, if, I'm, probably. If, <laughs> if, if probably, it, you know. Yeah. You know, it probably sort of like yeah. exists. Um, probably in, in the curriculum right, requirements, right. surely. Surely, yeah. But then again, you you do have um, you know scholars like uh, the late Professor Ku, mm -hmm. Ke Kim, and Ranjit Singh, who I think a few months ago came out in the newspaper and say, I think they came up with crowdsourcing kind of project oh. where they where they appealed to the public and asked for I think five mi four to five million dollars okay. uh, for the express purpose uh, so that they are able to then collate all the materials and write a definitive history of sorry, Malaysia. Okay, that's uh, interesting. I mean, to me, it's an interesting sort of like project, but I was also thinking at the back of my head, why don't you use the $5 million to set up a proper digitized sort of archive mm. so that Malaysians from all sort of segments of society can access that information mm. and make the decision themselves. Mm. Uh, but that's... That's the part of me that wants information to be as free as possible, yeah. right? And for people to access that information yeah. more easily. But I don't know, what is your thought on this? Do you think that we still need uh, historians there to help us arbitrate or at least uh, interpret those information in, some, in a much more informed manner? Um, I don't think we necessarily have to have historians mm -hmm. like with a capital H, but people with historical skills, I right, suppose. Right. Like anybody could. It would be so interesting for more people to go into the archives, find out whatever, honestly, whatever they think is interesting and mm -hmm. do like an analysis and then mm -hmm. put that up somewhere. I don't know, like mm -hmm. if it's like a YouTube channel about right. things, oh, gems from the archives, like that would be so interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I think definitely there is potential for more projects to be done from the outside, I guess you could say, mm -hmm. because I think what's necessary is a whole culture change right. uh, towards history and its importance. Mm. Uh, and you see that growing as a consciousness, like people are finding it finding importance in I it. see it in the communities that we are part of. Okay. But in outside of people who like outside of um, I suppose urban English speaking 
people who have come out of uh, universities abroad. Uh, I actually also see it in uh, local activism. I recently uh, was invited to a program about actually our history books Mm -hmm. and the kind of histories it privileges and the histories it leaves out or omits. So there is that conversation going on. But even then, there was a discussion about how do you bring this to the larger public? Mm. So I think there's definitely an understanding that public at large are not thinking about these questions. And the discussion right now is how do we get this to be public discourse? Right, right, right. Yeah. So you mentioned uh, being a part of a circle that I think Simon is in in terms of uh, approaching history in a, in, a, in a specific way, right? So uh, apart from that initiative, are there different initiatives in Malaysia that are looking at you know history from a different lens? Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, work going on in the Malay language space. Mm. Yeah, so I think it would be interesting to just talk about that, actually, right. the differences that we see within like the English Anglophone, yeah, I guess you could, history space and like Malayophone history space. Mm-hmm. Because right now there is a website called Patriot. Oh yeah, 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 right. Yeah, follow it. Yeah, oh, you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I recently like opened up their website to learn what they do, right? And they they have a lot of different articles. There was one article about oh the fact that animals also have periods, which is interesting. I think just like okay. light light articles, but they also produce many articles that are historical in nature mm. uh, that kind of uh, talk about. Um, the malaise place I suppose you could say here and also emphasize the importance of Islam or like malaise and Islam like Mm -hmm, that's a theme mm -hmm. for that and they serve Uh, a public history role yes they definitely serve a public history role these articles that they write are for the public Mm -hmm. but there is definitely also a movement against not a movement I would say but there is also another camp which kind of wants to challenge that you know the primacy of malaise and Islam I suppose Yeah, in the space, at least in that kind of way that reserves power for themselves. Okay. Yeah. And who are these people? Uh, These are, there's this uh, journal, Sang Pemule. Okay. Yeah, they're currently, their platform is Facebook, but they're starting up a website called Rekot. Record R E K O D. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. And, wh- and where are these initiatives coming from? Are they from KL itself, or are they from different parts of Malaysia? They're from KL, but there's actually a network mm-hmm. across Southeast Asia. So the thing that I went to, like a professor came from NUS, okay, uh, Dr. Azhar Ibrahim. All right, okay. Yeah, and recently some people within this uh, journal Sang Pumula went to a conference in Indonesia mm-hmm. and w- someone from there is coming to the next meeting. So there's definitely like a, a network going on mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. what historical discourse should be in the public sphere. Right, yeah, right. But this is happening in the Malay Malay sphere. scene, right. Yeah. Uh, what you've sort of like described almost as if like our history enthusiast communities tend to be divided along language lines, right? Mm. Uh, But nevertheless, you know, what's interesting about you is that you also undertook the study of Tamil uh, at University of Chicago Mm -hmm. during your undergraduate Mm -hmm. days. Uh, Is this a conscious effort to sort of, you know, cross boundaries and disrupt the normal kind of like division of of communities along language lines? I would say that consciousness is secondary rather than primary in Mm -hmm. terms of motivation. Uh, Motivation-wise, I chose to study Tamil 
merely because it is one of the spoken languages in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. And for me, top on my list of languages to study, I love languages. And if possible, I would be able to speak all the languages and write all of them and understand all of them. But top of my list would be the languages spoken in Malaysia. Mm-hmm. But definitely, I recognize the significance of being able to study Tamil and read Tamil because I think that is a neglected area of research. Right. Like the relationships between Southeast Asia and South India actually and actually historically that's a big relationship Mm -hmm. Um, like stretches back for centuries exactly exactly probably the source of where Islam came to the region which Mm -hmm. is like a huge watershed right right yeah Yeah. going back to the point where we discussed how history has been approaching different sets of languages, right? Yeah. The Malay community approaching history in a different angle, the Anglophones approaching uh, history in a different angle. Is this something that can never be solved? Is this something problematic that can never be solved, you think? I think it is a shame that you don't really see faces across the spaces. Mm. So these bubbles are a little bit exclusive in that way. Uh, and there isn't like... Cross More interaction. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Because it also shows like a, I wouldn't say class divide, but also, yeah, I mean, the mm-hmm. English speaking yeah. people usually are like more educated at more elite, yeah. uh, at least globally, on a global level, institutions. And I think that it is uh, neglectful of us, actually, mm-hmm. the English speaking scholars, mm-hmm. to discount or like not be conscious of uh, scholarship coming out from Malay, right. especially as Malaysians. Right, actually, right, yeah. right, yeah. How do you propose that we could, you know, address or bridge this uh, divide? Yeah. Or well, I, I guess uh, before I answer that, I mean, I would like to ask you a question. Like, okay, you, sure. Like as a, as a lecturer in seat. UM, uh-huh. <laughs> as a lecturer at a public university, UM, uh, which is really significant. Right. Uh, do you see like, uh, uh, do you see differences between scholarship that comes out from, uh, in Malay? Do we engage with that as much as we engage with scholarship that comes out produced in English. Right, right. Uh, so what I try to do in my class, well, I don't teach the history program. Yeah, okay? history. Uh, so I should sort of like qualify that. Mm-hmm. In the teaching about history, then um, I try to get my students to be at least aware of mm. sources in different languages. Mm. Right? And that also sort of like means that with each article that they read, uh, they would sort of go to the bibliography and try to sort of understand where sources sort of come from. Mm-hmm. And very often that also means that they would then begin to appreciate that uh, in order to sort of put together an article, you need to engage in materials in different languages. Mm-hmm. And so that's one way I sort of like try to address this. Mm-hmm. But I'm, you know, I've, I've also been running this researching digital archives mm-hmm. workshop with Malaysia Design Archive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the resource that I normally share with the participants, I would list down, I guess, sources in all these different languages. And during the workshop, would spend a lot of time actually sort of like explaining, you know, even in langu- uh, sources in languages that maybe some participants are not familiar with, mm-hmm. just so that they're aware that there's this set of material and that if you want to sort of like study even the perspective of, say, the Chinese or the Malay, you need to look at other sources yeah. in order to sort of like enrich your accounting. Yeah. Uh, so that's one approach that I have. 
Yeah, you know, I don't know if that answers your question yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> on some level. Yeah, uh, because you... I find it very useful. I mean, I love this website. It's one of the most ethno-nationalist website. It's called Kusultana uh, Melayu, oh, Alam Melayu okay. or something like that. But nevertheless, the amount of research, or the amount of time a lot of the participants in yeah. that group spent in digging out materials and archival sources yeah. and sharing it online with the group members, it's just fantastic. I love it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so we need to be engaging with that, yeah. right? Yeah. So a lot of the times I do a back-end engagement. Like I won't go I see, in and... See, see, see. Yeah. I guess what we can do is, yes, it's going to be a slow thing and it also kind of depends on your language ability, of right, course, yeah. right? Uh, how comfortable you are reading Malay. Right, right. And I think that as someone who has spent the last four years in America, that's also like an ongoing effort for me. like Because mm-hmm. I have been exposed to more English language sources, etc. But now I definitely want to spend time and take it seriously, like reading through scholarship produced locally and in Malay, etc. Because otherwise, like, how could I be a responsible scholar? Right, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I think we have to wrap things up. Very soon. Uh, any last thoughts, Simon, and maybe Nadine? Nadine? I guess last thoughts is also how historical consciousness not only helps us understand our past better and from different perspectives, but also it helps how it impacts other areas of our life. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for example, a concrete example in the work of migrant worker rights mm-hmm. or refugee rights, a historical consciousness of the fact that migration has been a historical reality across human civilization mm-hmm. kind of diffuses the stigma you would have against people from outgroups or other. Mm-hmm. And it also, for me at least, it gives me a consciousness of what cruelty human civilization is capable of mm-hmm. and the fact that any civilization might be capable of that. For example, like the Native Americans were just mm-hmm. a not really obliterated, but their fate was very sad and not even resolved up to this day. Right. So it's important. Historical consciousness, is it provides you more opportunity for an open mind, I suppose. Mm. Yeah. That was Nadine Faisal, a history graduate from University of Chicago. She's joined by Simon Soon, and we've been talking about the concept of historical thinking, among others. Uh, share your thoughts with us by tweeting us at BFM Radio, or you can send us an email to nightschool at bfm.my. You can also follow us on Facebook, look for BFM Night School. Don't forget to also download the BFM app, which you can get on the Apple App Store and Google Play. Thanks once again, uh, Nadine and Simon. Thank you, Nadine. Thank you. I'm Hanif Baharuddin, and you've been listening to Night School on BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.